Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys have had a wonderful week. Also, happy Orca and Pride Month. Hopefully, you guys have been checking out the awesome events that Orca Month has to offer. This week, I did an episode with Deborah Giles, and we talked about what we can do to help the Southern residents. Her and I did just do an event with Gloria Pancrazi and Elena um, from the Co-Extinction film, and you guys can uh, catch the recording of that if you want to go online and look at that. It's on the Orca Month's website. Um, We are going to be offering a trivia event next Monday, June 14th at uh, 7 p.m., so if you guys are interested in doing that, um, it's over Zoom, so um, anybody can join it from anywhere, but it's 7 p.m. PST, um, so definitely feel free to join that. But before we get started with this episode, just a quick message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Blackfin Coffee. Blackfin Coffee is an e-commerce roasting brand based in Seattle, Washington, and I want to tell you about them. I was really inspired by the brand's focus initially to partner with PNW Protectors to lock arms and help save the southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest. For more information, visit them at www.blackfin.coffee. That's blackfin.coffee. For our listeners, Blackfin will be offering 20% off your first purchase with the promo code BREACHEXTINCTION20 at checkout. Again, head over to blackfin.coffee and redeem your promo code today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week, I've got uh, Dr. Deborah Giles here, and she's from Wild Orca. She's been on a couple other times. I'll be sure to link the other episodes below. Um, But we're here to talk about orca family structures. How are you doing today? I'm I'm pretty good, thank you. How are you doing? Good. I'm excited to to talk more about this in depth because this is a topic we haven't really covered in depth yet over the course of this podcast. Yeah, it's it's interesting and and uh, uh, yeah, just um, it's changing. So it's always something to keep up on. But just uh, thinking back into the past and and uh, what we know so much about these whales uh, comes from our observations of their family dynamics. So uh, happy to talk about it. Awesome. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how we came to identify these whales and understand their social fabric? Yeah, it's actually a pretty amazing story. So back in the early 70s, Mike Big, Dr. Mike Big from Canada, was uh, the first one to actually start doing photo identification of, of killer whales. Um, as the populations were being targeted for the for marine for marine parks removals uh, from the wild for marine parks, um, the federal governments on both sides of the of the border in U.S. and Canada, and also just citizens of of this area, really started um, asking the question about you know what are we doing to these whales? How many whales are out here? Is it okay to keep taking so many out of the wild and putting them into captivity? 
And so uh, Mike Biggs started a, a pretty amazing and revolutionary uh, concept of doing photo identification. To jumpstart that project, he sent out surveys to people uh, in, the, in the region, uh, individuals and organizations that uh, operate in and around the Salish Sea, and, uh, and uh, sent out uh, a survey to say to, on one day to document what they were seeing. Um, in front of their eyes, basically, who was there. And um, amazingly, uh, a number of people did respond to that survey. And out of that, it became very evident to my big that there actually were not a huge number of, of these animals, that there, there were a, a finite number. And he, his predictions came pretty close to what they, what, what they ended up being with, with less than 100 individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so that kind of really jump-started this whole concept of, uh, of, uh, of piecing together what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, who are these killer whales? Where, where were they going? Did they live here year-round? <clears throat> and uh, Ken Balcom tells the story about how when Mike Big uh, first uh, introduced the, the concept of photo identification to the very first uh, marine mammal conference, um, he can, as Ken puts it, he was laughed out of the room sort of thing because nobody believed that you could actually do photo identification and, and tell one individual from the next uh, year after year. But through that amazing work, they, they were both, so Mike Big on the Canadian side and then starting in 1976, Ken Balcom on the U.S. side, um, to, and then together they, they really were able to, to come up with pretty darn accurate um, uh, family trees for for the fish-eating killer whales. Mm -hmm. Back then, mammal-eating killer whales were seen, but not nearly to the degree that they're seen now. Um, So they didn't have quite as many individuals that they had to work with and try and figure out the family structure. Uh, But within the Southern resident community, uh, the the two groups, uh, you know, the people working with Mike and, and the people working with Ken, um, were pretty darn accurate in in mapping out these family trees, and so what that ended up showing was is that you know these these uh, males and females do stay with their mother uh, their entire life. Um, since then, there have been a couple of notable exceptions, but back then in in the mid seventies, um, there was no dispersal from the natal group uh, mm-hmm. for male or female, which was very unique within mm-hmm. the mammalian world. And, uh, and then that's, that's how they kind of really started mapping out, you know, who's, who's the oldest one there, who, mm-hmm. meaning who's post-reproductive, mm-hmm. who, which of the females are, are done having their offspring, and then what females stay with her, and then what, what offspring are kind of mostly associated with those individual, mm-hmm. say, daughters and granddaughters. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's really interesting that they, that those early photos were able to um, provide enough information for the researchers to map out J pod, K pod and L pod. Mm-hmm. And then of course, later, uh, research, uh, were folks were able to determine that there were distinct dialects, um, between the three, you know, uh, uh, distinct dialects within each pod and then, uh, kind of overall, um, language, I guess you could call it that, uh, a common language, uh, between mm-hmm. the three pods. And so it's just been a, um, you know, an, an addition, mm-hmm. uh, and sadly sometimes subtractions from the, from the family trees when, when individuals are born and die. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we know pretty much, we know, uh, every individual, um, 
almost every individual that's that's alive in the Southern resident community today has been born since the study started, um, or they were youngsters when the studies first started. So all of the family lines are, are absolutely known at this point. Some of those earlier ones were tentative, and you see that uh, if you ever have a chance to look at the old school ID guides for the Southern residents, you'll see individuals that are uh, linked together with dotted lines or dashed lines. Um, and those those show tentative relationships, but come to find out uh, through later analysis, genetic analysis, that those early um, early mappings of the of the family trees were pretty darn accurate between Mike Big and Ken Balcom. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, and I like I remember when I was working at Moat Marine Lab, we did like photo ID, and at the time I had no idea that Michael Biggs was like the guy that did that. It's so cool that we've been able to apply this to so many other species. Oh yeah, not just not just marine mammals now, but people use photo ID for everything from you know anything with discernible patterns, zebras or you know a- anything that you can uh, that isn't going to change over the course of the lifetime of the animal. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So I know you had mentioned that, you know, we think that some of the social dynamics have changed. What is, what are the current, you know, social fabrics for the Southern residents look like right now? Well, it used to be um, where kind of come into the spring right now, or maybe even a little bit earlier in the year, we would have had J-Pod coming around, starting to come around and, and stay around almost every day. And then K's and L's would wander in uh, kind of uh, late May into June. Um, later, I've been studying the Southern residents since 2005. And um, since then, there there have been a number of, of, of years when K-Pod would show up in July. Strangely, often right around July 4th or even on July 4th, which where I was like, oh my gosh, why do you come during the busiest, literally the busiest week mm-hmm. um, of the year it used to be. But um so it used to be the case that uh, all members of the Southern resident community would be here in the summertime almost every day. You could mm-hmm. expect to see them uh, most days between, say, uh, June and the end of uh, September. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it used to be when people would say, oh, what's the best time to see killer whales, Southern resident killer whales? We always would say July. Mm-hmm. Um, come in July. That's the best time to see them, followed by June and August and then followed by May and September. So that this kind of like mm-hmm. radiating out, um, you know, mapping of, of time in the Salish Sea. That is absolutely not the case now. Mm-hmm. Last year was the first time on record when we didn't have any members of the Southern residents, no, no JK or LPOD members in the month of August. That's not that's not been documented before. We keep hitting these really unfortunate milestones where we'll only have you know one or two days in, in a month where we see some members of the community. And so that's the most obvious way that that things are changing is that you just don't have them in the inland waters here in the number uh, in the uh, you know number of days that we used to have them. Furthermore, when we do have whales here, it used to be in the past when you said, oh, you know, uh, southern residents are on the west side of San Juan. That meant all the Southern residents would be here, all J's, K's, and L's. Mm -hmm. And then as the years have progressed more recently in the last, say, since really 2013, things changed significantly. Um, You know, prior to that, if even if you you said, 
um, J-Pod is on the west side of San Juan Island. That Mm -hmm. meant all of J-Pod was within calling distance of one another. Mm -hmm. Now we say, you know, it's the J-17s or the Mm J-16s and, you know, or J-16s and J-22s or something like that, where it's just one or two natural lines um, that are here. Um, and then, you know, that's not even include, you know, so not including any K's or L's. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about a population, a, an insular population like the Southern Resident Killer Well community or clan is where there's not um, there's not dispersal uh, mating going on. Uh, they don't mate with any other ecotypes, any other types of killer whales just within J, K's and L's. Um, that's a really bad thing when you're not having these different pods coming together. Um, and it's possible that they're coming together out in the open, you know, open ocean or along the Pacific coast, um, where out of the, out of the sight of humans. Um, but it used to be the case that we could expect to see, um, one or more pods here almost every day. And so mm-hmm. th- that this was the time that they were getting together and mating outside of their pod. Mm-hmm. Um, and now if you have a situation where, for example, you only have one matriline that are able to stay in an area because that's how much food is available to them, that's not a good thing because that can lead to inbreeding. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so things like that are very, very disturbing and, and concerning um, and then just the, just the very fact that we know that these animals are incredibly socially bonded mm-hmm. across pods, within pods, certainly within families, but within pods and across pods as well. And to just have those opportunities for them to come together, becoming fewer and far, farther between um, is just a, um, you know, what it's like when, when you don't get to see your, your mm-hmm. extended family for for years, we've all lived through through this in the last uh, 17, 18 months with COVID. Um, you know, it's hard when you go, don't get to see your family or, or your extended family. And so that's the situation that these whales have found themselves in for the past decade or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because of there, there's just not a lot of prey to bring them in and keep them in here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So do we know where they've been going since then or where they hang out now? Um, uh, prior to yesterday, really, I would have made the prediction that at least Jays would have been found, could have been found out near Swiftshire Bank and along the west side of Vancouver Island. Um, there was another research group that was out there working, uh, for the last 26 days and they didn't find any Southern residents in 26 days. Um, the last couple of years when our colleagues from Canada have been out there doing uh, surveys, they mm-hmm. have come across when the whales were not here, um, oftentimes they were almost every day when they weren't seen here, they weren't some or all members of J's and, and uh, members of K's and L's were being picked up out, out there at the, at the mouth of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. That was not the case this year. So uh, the short answer is no. Um, we were having, a, um, a, I think, a, a higher incident rate of having jays here, um, here in the inland waters mm-hmm. uh, earlier in this in the season earlier mm-hmm. this year, um, kind of January one through about uh, middle of April, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they haven't been seen for about, gosh, I don't know, don't quote me, but I think more than six weeks now. Um, so they're not here mm-hmm. and they're not out at the mouth of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. 
So, um, and nobody's, nobody is commenting on seeing them up in the uh, northern resident killer whale range mm-hmm. up at the top of Vancouver Island. Um, so, you know, again, short, shorter mm-hmm. answer. I have no idea. Oh, I have wow. no idea. Wow. Hopefully someplace where they're finding food. Yeah. You know, you're down there in Monterey. Uh, you guys would let us know if you're picking them up there. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that um, back in, uh, I want to say it was 2010 or 12, uh, when K-25 was satellite tagged, um, I was a student at UC Davis still, and I got a call from uh, Ken Balcom, and then I was coordinating with Brad Hansen, who was leading the project, um, that uh, K-Pod was off the, the west coast of California, right out the mouth of the Russian River just north of Point Reyes National Seashore. And so uh, my husband, uh, now husband, but partner at the time, uh, we jumped in a car and headed to the coast and we were in contact with the people that had the satellite um, locations of the pod based on K- uh, K-25 satellite tag. And uh, for two days, we raced up the coast trying to catch sight of them. We knew they were there because they were being, they, you know, the satellites were pinging their lat long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the water on the coast is so different than it is in the inland waters here that we didn't, it took us all day, that whole second day. We got out there that first evening too late to follow them north. Um, but we, it took us from early morning until uh, quite late in the evening to actually finally pick them up off of uh, Mendocino. And uh, I was remember being on the phone with Brad and he's like, they are literally right in front of you. And there were, by then we had kind of amassed a group of people, just observers wanting to know what we were doing. And there were eyes with binoculars on the water for a good hour before we finally picked them up. And that's because they were being lost in the trough. Mm -hmm. You know, a wave would come up and the whales would be down here and we'd be on shore over here and we just couldn't see them. And it, I, it was a it was a really eye opening experience for me because people, you know, we Washingtonians. I'm formerly a Californian and always probably will be at heart, mm-hmm. but you know, we Washingtonians think of these whales as our whales because yeah. in the past they were here um, all the time. You know, th- this is the summer core critical habitat for the southern residents, both in the U.S. and Canadian waters here. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that J's, uh, pardon me, at least K's and L's are California's and Oregon's whales too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the more, the more that, uh, that folks down there can really start, start recognizing that and, um, and, um, and, you know, studying them more, uh, the more, you know, we need that. We, we need eyes on the water. We need people to be, to be documenting where these whales are throughout the the entire range and and protecting the rivers that that are spawning the the salmon that these whales are going after you know the the sacramento uh with tributaries to to the sacramento river would have produced that i do believe the only winter chinook salmon Mm -hmm. uh that that these whales that's why the whales were going uh at least l's and, and k's were going down there was for those winter really fatty uh, winter Chinook salmon that were bound for the Sacramento River. We have to be doing massive, massive changes in the way that we're managing our fisheries mm-hmm. and agriculture if we're to, you know, hope to, to recover the, the wild Chinook salmon that, that called those rivers home. 
Absolutely. Um, have we considered satellite tagging the whales like any time in the near future? Would that be helpful or no? Well, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, right now that project is on hold. Um, it, it's a very, it's a, has turned out to be quite a controversial project. Um, it, it's on hold because one of the satellite tags, uh, killed one of the Southern resident males, L95, um, a number of years ago. And so that project was put on hold. Um, to me, I, I am thankful that we have the data that we co- were able to, we mm-hmm. collective humans, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the data that those whales provided, those tagged whales provided, because it has given the federal government the um, definitive proof that they need in order to designate critical habitat off the coast of Washington, uh, Oregon, and California, which mm-hmm. is not designated as critical habitat for the Southern residents yet. Mm-hmm. They needed that information in order to absolutely prove that the whales do go down there and not just on a, on a you know, not just as a fluke. Mm-hmm. You know, there are researchers down in California and, you know, whale watch ca- companies down in, in Monterey, California, who have documented the Southern residents, K's mm-hmm. and L's, down there in the past over decades, um, but we didn't know how often they went down there. K-Pod uh, is now, you know, really thought to have um, their range extend at least all the way to Point Reyes. It seems like Point Reyes is kind of a stopping point for K-Pod, and then L-Pod does more regularly go down to, to Monterey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that information is invaluable. Mm-hmm. To me, at this point, I, I'm not certain for a population as small as the Southern residents, mm-hmm. given the fact that that it, it is a it is a barbed tag that is projected with a pneumatic rifle or a crossbow into the car, you know, into the dorsal fin um, and the potential for introducing fungus or bacteria or other things that can cause the death of, of an individual. Um, I just Personally, I don't, I think we have enough information to know that those areas need to be, uh, need to be protected. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know they go down there because of those tags. So I wouldn't trade that information for anything, Um, but I'm not sure how much more information, new information they would be able to provide for us, except, you know, quasi real-time data. But Mm -hmm. to me, we don't need that. We have enough research to know um, that, that they need and rely, have, have historically relied on um, salmon coming out of uh, California and Oregon rivers. And that should be enough for us as as researchers and advocates for the recovery of this endangered population to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I've thought about like, where are they now? But I mean, we know that they hang out along the, you know, the West Coast of the United States. So you're right that that probably is enough at this point. Um, I You had mentioned earlier the DTAG data um i mean can they not use like d tags to get satellite information is that totally different there is a version of the d tag the d tag stands for depth tag but mm-hmm. it does a lot more than just depth um the d tag i think version three does have gps capability um but it's it's um uh, it and I'm not the best person to answer for mm-hmm. uh, accuracy, but the last time I had a conversation about it, um, it wasn't as accurate as, uh, as you know, you, you couldn't, 
you could get a general vicinity mm-hmm. <clears throat> within a couple of meters or maybe tens of meters mm-hmm. um, for where the whales are, which for most researches is absolutely accurate enough. Um, I, I, I've been a part of the D tag. The suction cup tag is another word for that. Um, since it started, I think we started that in 2010. Um, the idea behind that is uh, what is to, um, so the depth tag does get depth, but it also records um, things like speed. So velocity, it, it um, it's, uh, acts as a um, kind of a gyroscope. So it, mm-hmm. it records pitch and roll, mm-hmm. um, also audio. And so uh, coupling uh, all of that, what we what I call whale collected data. So the suction cup goes onto the whale uh, with a, a, a piece of equipment uh, that is attached to four suction cups. So the four suction cups get stuck on the whale. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you get all of this huge amount of information, the audio, what what is the sound that the whale is receiving? Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, what sound is the whale giving? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's boat noise, but also conspecific calls and clicks and whistles and things like that. It also picks up echolocation clicks and it picks up things like um, uh, flow noise, but you also know from the speed from the actual equipment that it can capture the whale um, biting down on a salmon, wow. which is really cool. So you can, uh, the researchers, Dr. Marla Holt um, and Jennifer Tennyson uh, at uh, Northwest Fisheries Science Center, along with Brad Hansen and some others um, at NOAA, and then myself and Jeff Hogan from Killer Whale Tales were the um, uh, and Ariel Brewster uh, has kind of filled in for me in the last couple of years with my equipment mm-hmm. on that boat, um, taking the whale location data and all of the locations of the boats around them. But basically, when you put all of that information together, you can really see um, what the day in the life of, of that tagged whale mm-hmm. is like. How many boats are around? Mm-hmm. What kind of audio is coming at the whale? How many times do the whales uh, forage? How successful are their foraging bouts? Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. It's a huge amount of data. Um, those tags, because they're suction cup tags, and because the whales are a very tactile with one another, they often engage in surface active behaviors like breaching that can pop the tag mm-hmm. off. Um, and then just the general flow of the whale moving through the environment, it ends up causing that the suction cups to lose adhesion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they just don't stay on that that long. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the scientist Marla Holt is leading this part of that project. Um, she'll set a time, well, two things. This project has two phases. Mm -hmm. The first phase was when we were trying to place those tags as early as possible in the day so that the whale would wear the tag throughout the all daylight hours. And then Marla was able to program the tag to to release um, about an hour before sunset so that we could retrieve it and take it back so that she could offload the data. Mm -hmm. Because if the whale collected eight hours of data, if the tag was on the whale for eight hours, it takes at least eight hours and often more to offload that data. So the first four years when we did the tagging, um, the idea was to get what was happening in the daylight time? What kind of um, you know audio was the whale um, both giving and receiving? Now in the last couple of years, the idea was to t- place the tags so that they could be worn by the whale throughout the nighttime 
to see what is that, you know, what is a day, what is an evening or what is a night like, uh, you know, a night in the life of a whale. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has pretty interesting implications for things like, um, you know, shipping, large, uh, large shipping Mm -hmm. container ships moving through the environment. Mm -hmm. Might it make sense to possibly move some of that shipping to nighttime? Mm -hmm. If the whales are spending more time foraging during daylight hours, um, then maybe we should be moving, uh, increasing uh, the potential for them to have a quieter time mm-hmm. during the daylight. Or do they do they forage equally as much at night? We, mm-hmm. You know, we're just these are things that we we don't quite know. Um, and so that's the point of the most recent. And I and I do believe that the, the tagging is going to happen uh, again in 2021. Awesome. In an ideal world. Um, there are people that are working on um, a kind of a, I want to say like a hybrid where it doesn't, it doesn't stick into the whale, but um, basically uh, there's a, a researcher that was, that was through the, um, the Friday Harbor labs um, who was working on a, a biomimetic mm-hmm. uh, tag. And I do believe that there are some other organizations working on this as well. Uh uh, utilizing um, biomimicry, basically things like clingfish. Mm-hmm. Clingfish can stick to anything, even when they're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they stick to to things, and so using the kind of the, the what nature can show us um, in order for us to design man-made products that would stay on longer than a suction cup, but not be as invasive as a as a satellite tag. And so that's you know I'm hopeful for that that kind of technology coming out in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be awesome, for sure. I think that we'll only continue to see things rapidly change, and we're only going to understand more in the future. Like, there's so many people out there creating different types of, you know, data collection methods. So that's yeah. very exciting. Um, so the DTAG methods, we, we've learned a bit about the acoustics. So do they have different calls within, like, JK and LPOD? Is it just, like, or do all the Southern residents have the same clicks and whistles? So there are very distinct uh, calls that only JPod makes, and well, as well as KPod and LPod, they all have their own distinct calls mm-hmm. within their pod. But then they also have common calls that they use uh, within the clan or within the whole community of Southern residents. Mm-hmm. And that's actually some of the ways that um, early researchers uh, started really recognizing the fact that there's not there's not crossover between these populations. So uh, just like Southern residents have their own uh, pod specific calls and then a community based uh, language, same with Northern residents, A through iPod, each of those pods has their own unique calls, but then they also have a shared language. So um, wow. absolutely, it's super interesting. Um, and I, I wish I knew more about that acoustics is kind of the one thing that I um, am perhaps not as, as up on as, as I would like to be, but I haven't found the time to, to dig too, too far into that. And I rely heavily on uh, my colleagues that have uh, studied this a, as their career. Awesome. Um, are there any like scientists who have written papers about this that you recommend we go and look if we want to learn more about the acoustics of the Southern Residence? Uh, the 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 uh, older older papers by John Ford, Dr. John Ford from DFO. He's retired now, but still involved. Um, there are some really interesting. Uh, Andy Foot mm-hmm. uh, has has some literature about uh, about calls. Um, 
Marla Holt uh, obviously uh, has a lot of different uh, papers out. Um, and I, I do believe all of those are open access uh, that uh, talk about the findings from the DTAG. Uh, Jennifer Tennyson uh, has some newer uh, studies out about the DTAG research. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah, I haven't looked as much into acoustics either. That's one that I'm not like super up on as well. Um, but I find it super interesting. And the people up at Orca Lab, um, they do a really good job at collecting acoustics on the northern residents. And talking to them has made me absolutely fascinated by the different calls. So that's yeah. so interesting. Um, and I, if we could, yeah. if we could even begin to parse out or understand what they're what they're saying, I mean, just imagine how amazing that would be. Yeah, it would be incredible. I know there was like a prairie dog vocalization study and they were able to get a lot of like information on what they were saying and like that those guys were able to communicate shapes and directions and things like that with one another so it would be interesting to see if i'm sure the southern residents and other orcas can do the same we just don't know how to figure it out yet oh yeah there's a really fun thing that um and i i surely it must be on online someplace but if you google um beam reach it's an organization that was, um, is run by Scott Veers and his dad, Val Veers. Mm-hmm. Um, they had students out here, and, and Dr. Jason Wood, too, of uh, SMRU, uh, was working with them at the time. And they, they had students that would come out to the San Juans and spend half the time on the water and half the time at the Friday Harbor Labs. Yeah. And I do believe that almost all of the projects that those students um, uh, completed were somehow related to acoustics. And one of them one year was really interesting because the, a, a student was towing um, an array. Yes. Uh, so an acoustic array where they could do uh, triangula- triangulation um, of where the call was coming from. And uh, they also had information uh, from above water. Mm-hmm. Another student was documenting the location of, of this youngster and mom. And they actually recorded the, the kind of the first clear call and response mm-hmm. between mom and calf as the calf was moving closer and closer and closer to the research boat. Mm-hmm. Mom's calls started becoming very much more urgent until at the very end, she gave a call that w- was for all intents and purposes, it must have been like, get over here right now <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And then you, and then the, the, the youngster just veered like completely off course. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put together an animation based on that, those calls. And I think that it's available. If it's not available online, you certainly could call or email Scott Veers uh, at um, S-V-E-I-R-S at gmail.com. And uh, he would um, provide that. That uh, It's just such a fun, um, interesting uh, documentation of, of two animals that are clearly communicating with each other. Absolutely. Yeah, that's like really interesting to hear you say that. I noticed, because I spend a lot of time around humpback whales down here, and the calves seem to be way more interested in the boats than the adults are. And we've definitely seen mom do some like, tail slaps that it just and then like you know the baby goes right over so it kind of seems like all the animals are like no like there's they all have their own way of telling their babies to come back right yeah gray whales do this thing um cindy hansen uh from orca network taught taught me and my students this actually she came uh, and gave a talk um, that uh, gray whale moms do this thing called bubble blasting Mm -hmm. um where they will 
that's exactly what they do. They blast out these bubbles. And uh, it seems uh, one gentleman, I think at Point Reyes actually, was videoing down into the uh, near shore where mom was kind of in and around this kelp bed. And same thing, like baby got a little too far away and she did this bubble blast and he came, he or she came right over. Mm-hmm. And so, like you say, I, I think that there are different modes of communication that these whales use uh, at, at different times. Sh- certainly Granny J2, who died at the end of 2016, multiple times uh, I was fortunate to, to be researching when she was still alive. And multiple times uh, I documented her because uh, here in the Salish Sea, when the whales are going heading north, um, there's two passes passes that they can use. They can either go up Swanson Channel or they can uh, kind of hang a right and go up Boundary Pass in order to get up to the Fraser River. And multiple times uh, over the course of the of the years that I uh, that I have been fortunate to be out there, uh, J two would just start slapping her tail on mm-hmm. the water, like not just a gentle lob, but like whack whack whack. And whales from all over would basically come right to her, and uh, that was <laughs> clearly she was communicating like, I want to go this way, and I want everybody to come with me, sort right. of thing. For sure, that's so interesting. Um, do you have an estimate on how old you think Granny was by the end of her life? Um, not really. I kind of say, uh, for anywhere between her late eighties and early one hundreds, um, the, the, the early researchers, Mike Big and and Ken Balcom, uh, thought that she, based on the fact that she was already post-reproductive, um, possibly had a daughter that was already post-reproductive, um, they put her age at about a hundred uh, at um, bor- her birth year at uh, 1911. Oh my gosh! Uh, it would have made her about 105 when she died. Um, there is some reason to believe, based on her DNA, mm-hmm. uh, which was collected by the Northwest Fishery Science Center researchers, uh, that that put her about maybe 20 years younger than that. Mm-hmm. But regardless, that's an incredibly yeah. old age for even any kind of animal, let alone this you know big, large brain, big you know big bodied animal like a killer whale. Um, it just is, it really speaks volumes to the, to their natural history. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it helps explain why those, why these animals, why this species has menopause, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're one of about five species, five or six species now known to have menopause. That's it. I mean, that's a very, very few number of species. Um, you know, elephants don't have menopause. A female can have a cat, a, a calf up to the year she dies uh, great apes, same thing, uh, monkeys, uh, really humans, uh, short fin pilot whales, killer whales. And now we think belugas and narwhals Mm -hmm. have, have, uh, menopause. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so that really, the, the reason for menopause, the reason for having menopause is so that we end up having this grandmother effect Mm -hmm. where the knowledge of the, of the, of the way of life, the history, the, the, um, the, the, the lore of, of what it means to be a killer whale and, and, and what it means to survive and what it takes to survive is kept in uh, alive long enough in these old females to be passed on to future generations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that the fact that, that, that a female stops her reproductive uh, capacity or her, you know, her 
contributing in that way to the population by having offspring of her own, the fact that she lives that long, she still benefits her offspring. She still increases her likelihood of passing her genes on, not just by her females living and, you know, staying with her and, you know, grandmother being able to tell females where to go, like we're going over here. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's not enough fish. I know another river system to go to. And, and also foraging and, you know, helping to feed the, the females, her daughter and grand, grand uh, whales, mm-hmm. um, but also females, these old females preferentially forage for and feed their adult males, right. their adult male offspring, which is really an interesting kind of um, interesting, another way for her to, to increase her own fitness Mm -hmm. by passing on her genes, making sure that her biggest, oldest male offspring lives means that they're going to be getting, uh, those mating, uh, mating opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so because he's mating outside of the pod, ideally, and outside of the family, hopefully, um, the responsibility of, of feeding that offspring is the responsibility of another female and, mm-hmm. and grandmother. So it's pretty amazing. That amazing, is pretty amazing. Um, evolutionary trait that these, that these females are, are, uh, are exhibiting. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so astonishing to see, you know, I feel like we've learned so much about whales in the last 10 years. And I know in science we're taught not to like anthropomorphize, but there are just physiological things that are the same like you know the whole menopause thing um and it's interesting to see how behaviorally it is similar to our own experiences and that other animals go through this as well absolutely absolutely yeah i think that's why people it's a big part of why people have a deep deep connection with killer whales is because we see ourselves in them Mm -hmm. it's easy to see ourselves in them Absolutely. I personally, I personally, I've said it before. Uh, I personally think they're a better version of us, and that we should be as, uh, uh, aspiring to be like them, mm-hmm. uh, and understand what it means to be um, uh, a participant in in your in your family and in your community by by watching them and their behavior. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I always ask people, you know, what can we learn from the whales? And you know, I ask. Howard Garrett, um, that question. And I remember him saying like, yeah, that like they're in tune with their environment. They're like active participants in their environment. And so many people say the whole family thing as well. And I, you're right. I think we have a lot to learn and that us humans have kind of gone astray of maybe, you know, what it means to be an earthling and like, I don't know, maybe I'm a little out there saying that, but that's kind of what I think. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I mean, these whales co-evolved uh, with the species that they prey upon mm-hmm. and the ecosystems that they that all that whole food web relies on. And so when we think about it in those contexts, they don't do things to harm their prey base. Yes. They don't do things to harm the ecosystems that their prey rely on. We do all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild to think that, you know, how how poorly we treat this planet given that it's from this planet that we make our living, that we make our, our ability to survive. And here we are, you know, doing pretty much everything humanly possible and almost inhumanly possible to absolutely kill this planet. It's just the most bizarre thing in the world. It really is. Like, 
And I remember, because I majored in psychology and environmental studies, but a lot of times in our comparative psych courses, we would be like, what's the difference between human and non-human animals? And, like, I think that's it. Like, that's the thing, is that, like, we're not, like, active participants in our environment. And that's not to say everybody, but, you know, the current westernized attitude. And, you know, we found a way to destroy the things that we rely on and then, like, justify it somehow. Right. I think we have a very bad habit of assuming that technology will save us Mm -hmm. and that, you know, this, this ridiculous notion that we can continue to degrade this planet, um, at the, at the speed and, and efficiency in which we are and expect to be able to, 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 you know, uh, MacGyver our way out of it. Yeah. Getting to the point where, in many different situations, we will not be able to MacGyver our way out of it. We will not be able to uncalve the the um, the icebergs and ice flows that are you know calving off of of uh, you know major major ice ice shelves ice sheets. Yes, we need that ice to stay intact because the you know the critters that utilize that, uh, like the the phytoplankton zooplankton that need that. Uh, are are going to suffer and so then therefore are uh, the the large whales and yeah. you know we're learning more and more and more how important a whale is um to to the overall health of the of the of the ecosystem that we call planet earth yeah and uh if we lose these large whales um i just i just it's crazy making mm-hmm. absolutely and i hope that we don't and i hope that we see some change um and I think we need to, like, as humans and as, you know, I don't like, as societies reflect on how we interact with our environment and actually put value into that and prioritize it and, like, truly think about it in a way that we haven't in the last several hundred years. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that there's change. I think that the narrative is definitely changing, at least, like, in the last 10 years or so. Like, you know, I've seen people, more people willing to accept climate change as a legit thing and, you know... Hopefully, we'll see more of that and more people will start to prioritize it. Absolutely. Um, Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? (laughs) I mean, I could talk about killer whales forever. So, no, I I think this is great. I think we did a thorough job of uh, today. Yeah. Happy to come back and talk some other time if there's some. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely appreciate that. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Definitely go check out Orca Month's website to figure out more ways that you can get involved and check out their events. Also, be sure to join us next week for trivia. Um, That will be Monday at 7 p.m. PST. Uh, And also, stay tuned for next week. We've got a very special surprise podcast coming to you, a super podcast, if you will. Don't want to give away any spoilers. Um, But next week's episode is definitely one you're going to want to tune in for. So watch out for that and hope you guys have a great week.